Mike Rags and Todd Burlage with a Blue Gold Report podcast. Fighting Irish sports from the inside out. Subscribe to the Blue Gold Report. It's not just talk, it's the Blue Gold Report. It is time for the Blue Gold Report podcast. I am Mike Rags. We're going to bring Todd Burlich here in a second. And, of course, it's always brought to you by D.O. McComb and Sons Funeral Homes. Wherever you found us, uh, make sure you share, like, and review us. Uh, and Unless you found us on ESPN Radio 1380 100.9 FM, where we run every Saturday morning. Busy week. Uh, a downer of the beginning of the week as the women uh, get eliminated and lose in the final game uh, in, in heartbreaking fashion. We'll get more into it. We'll talk about the game. We'll talk about the draft. The WNBA draft was huge for the ladies as well. And then we'll talk about the potential future for Muffet McGraw's team now that they lost the starting five. So it should be interesting where they go. Blue gold game. Hey, it's here and uh, we're ready to talk about it. Todd Burrell is going to help break it down. Uh, I know it was uh, Todd. I'll bring you in here. Todd from Blue Gold uh, Illustrated. I know it was kind of... Uh, uh, not really a headline, but I guess it was said and named that Ian Book is the starting quarterback. Uh, it didn't really send shockwaves throughout the sporting world, but I guess they had to make some sort of announcement, did they? I don't know. Yeah, that was kind of funny, Rags. I read some headlines uh, this morning, and Ian Book named the starter for Notre Dame. I guess I didn't realize there was any quarterback controversy or much doubt. Actually, I believe it's probably the first year that Brian Kelly's been here that there hasn't been any sort of controversy when it comes to your starting quarterback. Yeah, we talked about that in prior that this might actually be the case. So I, yeah, I didn't know who was waiting on bated breath for that, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe Ian was. Uh, right. But we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, so a lot to get to uh, today with that spring football uh, blue gold game. And you know, I know you got the blue gold nuggets here. And I, you know, heard earlier uh, today about this awful, awful story that you're going to lead with here with Sierra Woods. So not to uh, bury the lead, I, I did want to say I couldn't believe when I read it, but tell us more about it. Here's uh, Todd Blue, Todd Burlage with the Blue Gold Nuggets. Yeah, three-pack rags, but certainly starting with some very troubling news. Uh, former Notre Dame running back Sierra Wood, who played here from 2010 to 2012, actually left in 2013, skipped his senior year to try to go in the NFL. He went undrafted, then became a bit of a journeyman, uh, ended up with five NFL carries for 12 yards. Well, he's been arrested for first-degree murder along with his uh, girlfriend. Uh, he's 28 years old, and this is where it gets very troubling. Um, he's charged in the death of his girlfriend's daughter. She was five years old. Um, he was arrested Monday. Murder charge was actually added because he was originally arrested and charged with child abuse and neglect. Um, when the autopsy was completed, they found a large liver laceration in this young girl. Um, horrible, horrible story. Um, Amy Taylor, the 23-year-old mother, uh, she's also charged with these same crimes that we're talking about with Sierra Wood. Um, the father's been all over the news. He's just distraught because when she would be with him for visitation, she never wanted to go back home uh, to Wood and Taylor. And uh, he said he wished he would have read more into it, uh, but you can't blame him. And this is very troubling news, and obviously they're all allegations at this point, but uh, if it holds up, uh, we have seen the last of Sierra Wood when it comes to a free man. Uh, moving on to a little bit of happier news, or neutral news, we'll call this. Notre Dame is actually going to add metal detectors um, to all its entrances as far as the reserve seating type sports. So basically we're talking about the football stadium, Purcell Pavilion for the basketball games, and then the hockey arena. 
Um, it's just an ongoing push for safer fans and those types of things, security and whatnot. Kind of comes on the heels rags, if you remember, from the Clear Bag initiative that they instituted last year. Um, this will start on September 14th, which is the first home game at the football stadium. So, folks, keep that in mind. Don't pack your heat if you're coming to the stadium. Leave your knives at home. Leave all that stuff in your car uh, because otherwise you're going to have to run back to your car and put it away. So uh, something to watch there. And, again, it's probably not a bad move uh, on on the Notre Dame security front for sure. Notre Dame is now at its 85 scholarship limit. Brian Kelly announced this week that's more to be Luke Jones. He's a three-star offensive lineman out of the state of Arkansas. Um, he will transfer, just was really lost in the shuffle. He was originally, Rags, supposed to be kind of in line behind Mustafer and then Trevor Ruland as perhaps the starting center by the time he reached his junior or for sure his senior year. That didn't happen because they moved Jared Peterson over to center, and he's actually going to start. He's a classmate of Jones, so the writing's certainly on the on the wall there. And then they brought in a four-star center. Um, he's an early and really freshman uh, by the name of Zeke Correll, so he will be in the mix as well. So Jones wisely saw the writing on the wall and said, I'm out of here. Uh, he said it just really wasn't fit for him, and obviously he's probably right. And on another transfer note, uh, former Irish safety Devin Studstill, He's taking his grad transfer year at the University of South Florida, and those are your Blue Gold Nuggets. All right, thanks a lot, Todd. We'll break down the uh, 90th annual uh, Blue Gold game. I did not realize it was a monumental uh, Blue Gold game. It's uh, huge. Com- it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's huge. Um, anyway, uh, speaking of huge, how about that basketball game uh, last weekend? And, you know, i got to be honest, Todd. Obviously, I bleed blue and gold just like everybody else, and I wanted them to win back-to-back championships. But when Lauren Cox goes down and right. Notre Dame makes that remarkable run to get back in the game and almost win it, I actually felt bad for Baylor because they owned that game. She owned the tournament, and it would have, you know, it just would have left a sour taste in my mouth a little bit because Baylor really did deserve to win the championship. You get down seventeen like that, it's great and it shows a lot of heart what Muffet's gals did. But I have to admit, as much as I were rooting for them, I, I didn't want them to win that way. Yeah, devastating injury for the the big Baylor girl in the middle there, six foot four Lauren Cox. So that was a shame. And certainly the Baylor girl said after the fact that everything was that they were pouring their heart into this. Uh, it was all for Lauren. So in some respects, I, I agree with your point there. And at the same time, you know, your heart breaks for Notre Dame and especially Arike Ogumbawale. You know, you think about it, the hero last year with the game winners in the semis and then the finals. Now she has a chance to tie it with 1.9 seconds left. She's an 80% free thrower, misses the first. And then she actually, Muffet said she actually tried to miss that second sure. one. But it ended up going in, which I would be the obvious strategy there. And then when that went in, actually the game was over, which is kind of weird to say. But, you know, 82-81, final score. Notre Dame finishes 35-4. and Baylor really was a dominant team all season long. 37-1 and they finished. Baylor was actually about a three-point favorite in this game. Uh, so they were kind of expected to win. Uh, Muffet now goes to 2-3 and three in title games. Um, I'm trying to see here. But really, and... This game, really, and the comeback was great, as you said, Rags, and it did show a lot of heart. I mean, when you're down 17 midway through the second quarter, and then you're down 11 to start the fourth, 
that he actually sneaked out and stole a quick lead there. I wrote it down, but I just can't find it. Oh, so they got up 77-76 at one point, Notre Dame did. And I thought that's when they were going to win the game. But you missed 15 of your first 16 shots. You got in foul trouble early, and that's really where the game was lost. And Muffet discusses that right here. I'm really frustrated. And, well, I'm sad for the seniors that uh, we came that close after getting down 17 and clawing our way back. Um, had so many missed opportunities, both ends of the floor, defensively, offensive rebounds we gave up. Just uh, really, I thought, lost the game in the first quarter. You know, we just we just didn't come out ready, and that was disappointing. But uh, I thought it was a great season and uh, certainly a, a great career for Enrique, Marina, Jess, and Bree. You know, it's always tough to lose. Uh, I think you're always looking at that one thing you could have done differently to um, make the difference in the game and you know just just disappointed about our start you know that was um that was really unfortunate but it's um knowing what this group has meant to us um it makes it tougher to lose this way maybe there was an emotional high from the way they came back and beat connecticut i, I don't know todd and they played the late game that day i i don't you sure. have an extra day off so it was surprising considering you know once you get over that uconn hump again you feel like you're going to ride a wave of momentum to start the game, and they just didn't have anything. Braggs, this has been a story all season, especially in the postseason, those sluggish starts. Notre Dame this year, for all the talent they had returning, all the experience, really had to claw from behind in a lot of games here. Um, and it just it was just one too many for them. Down 25-14 after one quarter to give up 25 points is troubling enough. And then to only score 14 again, Muffet's right on. You lost this game in the first quarter. Enrique really took the blame for missing that foul shot, but heck, she scored 31 points to really key that comeback. Her and Marina Mabry, obviously Mabry's three-point shooting in that second half had a lot to do with it, too. She finished with 21 points, but I don't think anybody can kind of hang the goat horns on, on, on the team. I think Baylor probably ultimately, as you said, Rags, was just the better team, and it's just that it's just so difficult to come back from those sluggish starts. You're able to do it, but you can you typically can get close and even get a little bit of a lead, but it just ta- seems to take the wind out of your sails, and the team that built the big lead, you see it more often than not, finds a way to come back and win the game. Well, and then you talk about the future of these ladies, Todd, and you know, you, we talked about Jackie Young making the decision to come out early. Nobody dreamed that she'd go number one overall, right. and she does. She goes to Vegas, of all places. That'll be a lot of fun, so if you're planning a trip you know, on a Legionnaire, you can go watch her play in Vegas, and then the rest of the team gets drafted as well. That's not a surprise, but once you think about it, that's pretty monumental. It's pretty unbelievable what they did earlier this week. It proves to be the best draft class uh, as far as if you're talking about, you know, five members for, you know, really from one college team uh, in the history, in the 23-year history of the WNBA. Only one other time has a team had five players drafted, it's five starters. That was in 2008, uh, Tennessee pulled that trick there. But their players nowhere near went as high when you're talking about the collective uh, group as what Notre Dame's did. Notre Dame's five players' rags went in the top 19 Crazy. of the draft. That's incredible. You mentioned Jackie Young, number one. Arike, number five. Uh, she went to Dallas. Uh, Bree Turner, number 11. She was picked by Atlanta, then traded to Phoenix. Those were your three first-rounders. That's also a record. Um, Jess Shepard went 16 to Minnesota. And then Marina Mabry, 19 to L.A. Pretty impressive stuff. You know, there's only been three underclassmen in the history of the, of the WNBA 
to go first overall. Notre Dame has two of those. Uh, obviously, Jackie Young this year and Jewel Lloyd in 2015. Candace Parker, the other one, 2008. So you can go down here, and there's so many superlatives to this draft class. It's incredible. You know, you mentioned Vegas. Golden Domer, Bill Lambeer, he's the GM of that team. Um, he's the one that decided to pick Jackie Young first overall. Young will join Kayla McBride uh, and Lindsey Allen as a couple other uh, former Notre Dame players. She'll join those on the roster. Arike, who now goes to Dallas, will be a teammate of Skylar Diggins-Smith. Um, that's interesting because it's Notre Dame's top two scores in the history of the <laughs> program playing together in Dallas. Now, Skyler probably won't have a chance to play early in the season with Arike because she is pregnant, uh, but eventually these two will pair up, and we'll have to keep an eye on that, Rags, as we move forward with our shows here. Um, that's going to be kind of interesting. And now Arike, actually, I did not realize this. I just was kind of reading it as I was doing the show here. Arike's brother, Dare, Ogunbowale, he's a running back uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, so a couple pro athletes in that family. Uh, just a couple other quick notes here. Uh, Bree Turner in Phoenix will join Devereaux Peters, another former Notre Dame player. Looked into salaries a little bit here, Rags. We kind of talked about it last week, and I wasn't sure. The minimum salary for rookies, in the it, it, it's a range, 40000 to $50,000. And then after, free, after three years, it's a minimum of fifty six thousand, with a maximum of one hundred fifteen thousand five hundred. Um, so we're not talking about a ton of money here. So fifty fifty seven percent of the girls actually play overseas as well uh, to kind of supplement income, and you can make up to a hundred thousand dollars a year there. So. These girls have a little bit of earning power, certainly not what they do on the men's side, uh, but good job, for sure. I don't know if we'll ever see this happen again, Rags. It's the, it's the first time in 23-year history uh, that five girls have gone in the top 20 from one team, and it's going to be a long time coming before I think we see that again. Yeah, uh, I know we're going to dive into Muffet here and uh, her future as a female spokesperson, but is there any way to even look at what 2019-20 is going to look for this team moving forward yeah, right. you know i mean it, it, it they you, you one would think they'd be depleted but you know how she can recruit where do we go yeah. from here todd it's just going to be kind of a getting the girls to play together project rag certainly the the talent is going to be in place but there's no experience muffet really only went seven deep yeah. all year and, and even the the two subs that came in they didn't play a whole heck of a lot and, you know most of these girls were log- logging 35 to 40 minutes a game here among the starting five so certainly going to be new look certainly going to be a lot of all american talent running out there but at the same time talent doesn't match experience so certainly if there is such a thing as rebuilding year when it comes to Notre Dame women's basketball I would look to next year as being one of those now what does rebuilding mean when it comes to Notre Dame women's basketball Mm -hmm. I don't know maybe only a run to the final eight (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll have to wait and see but certainly a lot of questions and a lot of new faces come next season all right let's dive into we brought it up last week just by in passing about how Muffet McGraw was asked during one of the press conferences you know with Pat Summit being gone now who, who takes the mantle and are you ready to take the mantle and then she ran with it and took it uh she took the baton and doesn't even need a relay race uh todd so right and it really became buzzworthy and and really really i, I became if possible i was more proud of uh, what a tremendous lady she really is and you know i know you wanted to talk about it a little bit we have a little bit of the audio but uh, kudos to her and everything she's going to mean for the future of females not only in sport but in life this was interesting, Rags. We just didn't have a lot of chance to dive into it so much last week. But, indeed, her comments in Tampa, 
I think the one that really stood out to everybody and, and brought a lot of praise and a lot of criticism, equal parts, was that she will never hire a man on yep. her staff. And that goes all the way back. Now, she, she hasn't had a man on her staff since in the last seven years. Uh, Jonathan Tipsis, he left Notre Dame for another job in 2012. He's now the head coach at Wisconsin. And then uh, when he left, McGraw brought in Beth Morgan Cunningham. She's obviously a former star player here at Notre Dame. And that's really been the staff ever since. There's been a little bit of turnover, but certainly no men have been uh, in here. And that's what she's standing by. And we'll, we'll get into it in the clips here. But she talked a little bit. But I did a little research here. Since Title IX was signed and enacted in 1972, the purpose of this in part was to shrink the hiring gap between men and women in college sports. Well, at the time, when Title IX was first enacted, 90% of women's college teams across two dozen sports, 90% of those two dozen sports, women's sports teams, were coached by women. That number, Rags, has slowly declined here, and it's only about 40% now. And this is where Muffet is kind of going off here on all this. Now, basketball is a little bit different. Uh, the percentage slip is notable, uh, but 59% of Division I women's basketball teams are still coached by women although that was 79% in 1977. Um, interestingly, Muffet is not the only top woman's coach to kind of have this uh, all-female outlook when it comes to building a staff. You go to Stanford, Hall of Famer Tara, Tara Vanderveer. Uh, she's been there forever. She, she's been there actually since 1985, Rags, and she's never once had a man on her coaching staff. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But here's a little snippet to give folks a feel for what Muffet was getting at and when she was asked about, you know, just kind of gender inequality. We don't have enough female role models. We don't have enough visible women leaders. We don't have enough women in power. Girls are socialized to know when they come out, gender roles are already set. Men run the world. Men have the power. Men make the decisions. It's always the men that is the stronger one. And when these girls are coming out, who are they looking up to to tell them that that's not the way it has to be? And where better to do that than in sports? All these millions of girls that play sports across the country, they could come out every day, and we're teaching them great things about life skills, but wouldn't it be great if we could teach them to watch how women lead? This is a path for you to take to get to the point where in this country we have 50% of women in power. We have less, less now, right now less than 5% of women are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So yes, when you look at men's basketball and 99% of the jobs go to men, why shouldn't 100 or 99% of the jobs in women's basketball go to women? Maybe it's because we only have 10% women athletic directors in Division I. People hire people who look like them, and that's the problem. You got to love her. And you know what? For those worried that you need a man on your staff to win and be successful, look no further than Notre Dame. Uh, uh, right, and Stanford for that And matter. Stanford, yeah. So, uh, it, you know, what more can you say? And uh, as a, having a daughter, well, and, and you have one, a couple of them, I mean, it just made me want her to watch this and learn. Well, and it's working out for her. You know, I mentioned those seven years since she had a man on the staff. And let me back up a tick real quick. She actually felt like she really needed a man on staff for the sake of, you know, the AAU circuits, recruiting yep. out of those and those types of things. She thought it was important. And she even admitted a little bit that she kind of liked the girls to see her uh, above a man 
in that sort of power position. She said there was a little bit of that involved as well. But in the seven years since she went all-female on her staff, I mean, think about it. They've made five Final Fours. Uh, they reached uh, the title game four times, and they have a championship. So it's working out pretty well. And I think while people that want to criticize Muffet McGraw for speaking out and saying never hire a man, she's coached Notre Dame for 32 years. She's won more than 800 games, 10 straight Sweet 16s, nine trips to the Final Four, and two national titles. So I think if anybody has the earned the right yep. without fear of sort of retribution or, or getting fired or anything like that, it would be Muffet McGraw. So good for her. I think that Vander Vanderveer... And then really, um, uh, the, the I'm sorry, the uh, Kim Mulkey, Kim Mulkey from uh, Baylor and McGraw. I think they are the ones that are left to kind of carry this torch. And, and Muffet is obviously proud and ready to do so. All right, Todd, uh, let's talk about this blue-gold game, uh, which is happening this Saturday. Doors open at 1130. Uh, 12.30 is the kickoff. NBC Sports will be airing it, so if you get that channel on your Comcast, or if you're still wired in, you can do it. And one good thing before we break down the game, Todd, what I like what Notre Dame does is, if you're down there to watch the game, there's other opportunities to check out their sports, too, because they've got a lot of free games that you can go watch. I know the softball's in town, baseball's in town. They're all playing during the course of the day tennis is playing clemson you got women's soccer as well so there are opportunities to see more of the athletic department other than the football game because let's face it it's a scrimmage i don't know how riveting it can be i've never been to one so i shouldn't judge but i'm just saying <laughs> it's nice that on campus not only can you stop by the this game there are other games and other athletics to see yeah, plenty going on this weekend for sure. You make a good point there, Rags. And yeah, and it's going to be a nice day. It's not going to be necessarily warm, but it is going to be mostly sunny, uh, low mid fifties for the forecast. So just a you know a little jacket and whatever, you should be able to mill around quite a bit. You know, I, I guess let's just start with I, I guess a couple of things I want to watch for. Um, you know, we've talked about linebackers at length. Yep. I'm gonna maybe we'll get a better feel for the. You know, I guess first be warned. That what you see in the blue gold game rarely, if ever, equates to what you see in the fall. So if if an unknown player rises up and has a big game, don't pencil him into the two deep because it rarely happens. But I think linebacker play, just kind of looking at how Brian Kelly and his staff are kind of moving these guys around. You know, you have Asmar Bilal; he'll be there somewhere playing. He's going to be kind of the rock of this unit. Uh, but you got Jack Lamb. What's he going to do? Jordan Jemmark Heath. Shane Simon has probably been, during practice, perhaps the best player in a Notre Dame uniform. So I think defensively that's going to be one of the things I'm looking for. We've heard so much as well about this young core of receivers. You know you have Chase Claypool and Chris Fink, the two guys that are established and going to be starters. But who's going to play opposite those guys? Is it going to be one of these speedsters, one of these sophomore speedsters? I think probably so. So this might give a, give one of these guys, a Kevin Austin, a Lawrence Keyes, Braden Lindsey, Joe Wilkins Jr., uh, might give them one of these guys a chance to really make a mark as they head into the summer. So that's going to be kind of the other thing I'm watching. And we mentioned that now that we know, now that the secret's out, that Ian Book will be the opening day starter. Uh, all the suspense has been wiped <laughs> away from that, Rags. Uh, but, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch him. A lot of talk about how they, they want him to throw over the top more, perhaps a little more arc on his ball and different things like that. But I'm, in, I'm curious to watch Phil Jerkovic play. They only have two scholarship quarterbacks on this roster, so you're going to get a heavy dose of both of these guys, I'm quite sure. So let's go ahead and pop Brian Kelly in. He talks about Ian Book here and some of the things that they were looking for leading up to this blue-gold game, kind of where he stands, and then I'll give you the, run, uh, the rule rundown after this. 
vertically, throwing the football down the field with accuracy, uh, confidence, uh, movement in the pocket, ball placement on back shoulder throws, um, and a little bit more air. We wanted more of a level three type ball. We felt like his balls were flat last year um, when he pushed the ball vertically. A little bit more air for our guys to adjust to the football. All the things that um, he's been improving on. And Well, the quarterback in itself, you know, obviously when he touches the ball, there has to be a confidence level. You know, he displayed a, a, a confidence last year. You know, he's not a vocal uh, player in, in any way, but uh, he carries himself uh, really well. He's respected by the players. Um, but, but I don't think he's taken over that. You know, he's going to jump up in front of the group yet, uh, nor did he have to, you know, to be uh, seen as a leader. He's got a SWAT group, um, which he does a great job with. So um, by de facto, uh, you know, de facto as a quarterback, he's already, quote unquote, in a leadership position. Interesting, though. I will play conspiracy theorist here, Todd, and I'm interested to see mm-hmm. Phil Jerkovich as well. But the fact that this was a quasi story this week only leads me to believe that I wouldn't just sit on my hands and accept Ian Book as the starting quarterback in a couple of months. The fact that this was done makes me worry that there's actually some rumblings in someone's head somewhere that Phil Jerkovich might actually have a shot come September. I, I don't think so, Rag. I, I hope disagree. I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I, I just I'm wrong. I, I think coaches are, are kind of required to... You know, if nothing else, sort of pretend, uh, put on a charade. There's a quarterback competition, and I think they do that more for to keep Ian Book on his toes more than anything. You know, if you just come out and say right after the season, you know, as soon as the the Clemson game's over, yeah, Ian Book's our starter next year. Does he maybe become complacent? Does it seem to me like the type of player to do so? And, and then what does that do to Jerkovic, too, uh, when you look at it from that standpoint? You know, you have to give these guys, you have to hang a carrot out in front of these guys. And I think that's what Brian Kelly's doing. But he went on as he sort of had those comments about quarterbacks, basically said that he, Ian Book, is a master's-type class student. He, he's a, at a master's level where Jerkovic is still in kind of an entry-level position. So... I think when Brian Kelly said that, it goes to show you the gap between the two that will have to be made up. Talent-wise, perhaps not so much, Rags, but understanding-wise, I think, is where the big difference is between these two guys at this point. Now, that said, as the season moves on and there's a long way to go between now and the opener, I certainly, Ian Book will be the opening day starter, barring something unforeseen, um, but certainly, you know, Jerkovich will continue to learn. He's going to get a heck of a lot more reps than he did last year, and so perhaps he can close that gap and become a guy they can win with, but I don't think he's there yet, and I think Brian Kelly would agree with that assessment. All right, so if Jerkovich looks sharp and Ian Book throws a couple interceptions, don't start the uh, picket line just yet. No, no, I would say absolutely not, Rags. This, right. is, uh, this, is, this is Book's team. So for those keeping score at home, your advice, don't. <laughs> right, because you won't yeah. know what the hell's going on in this game, right? Amen. Yeah, this is the uh, this is the football version of golf's Stapleford scoring system. Uh, just as a couple basics here, the first half will have two 15 minute quarters, uh, just like a normal every you know every other football game. Clock stoppages on on normal situations, um, and then the second half will feature two 15 minute running quarters, uh, running clock quarters. So those just fly by big time. Second half, clock stoppages will occur only on injuries and timeouts. Um, Each team will be allowed allowed three timeouts per half. They do use those here and there. 
The halftime will last 15 minutes. There will be no overtime, obviously, Rags. What would be the point of that? <laughs> I think the rules of note, probably the most important ones here, uh, the quarterbacks will not be live, obviously playing in red jersey. That makes nothing but sense here. Um, each possession, no kickoffs. Punts will have to be fair caught. Each possession will begin at the 25-yard line. Um, so they, you know, they won't don't want that dangerous contact on those types of plays, the collisions. Uh, you can't rush on punts, PATs, or field goals, and no fakes or anything like that. Here's where it gets a little confusing. But you know, this actually scoring system has worked out a little bit. Had a couple close games here. It's offense versus defense. Defense, pretty standard stuff. Uh, touchdown, six points, extra point one, two point conversion, two field goal, three. Now here's how the defense scores. Uh, if they score a touchdown, it's six points. I think they should get more than that, frankly. Uh, any turnover forced is three points. If they can force a three and out, it's three points. Um, any stop, like going, it just it's not three and out, but if they have to punt, it's two points. And any sack or tackle for loss is one point. And while that sounds goofy, like I said, they've been pretty competitive games uh, with this scoring system. So, again, it's hard to keep track of. Just pick out a position group you want to keep an eye on. Don't read too much into it. Like It'll be a nice day, so what the heck. It's something to do on a Saturday as we get ready for summer. And in all honesty, this is when um, this is when everything slows down around campus right here uh, following this Blue Gold game. And we, one thing we know for sure, as this is the 90th game that they play, they are 89-0 and in this game, which is real nice. You're going to go away a winner no matter what you do. Yep, indeed, indeed, and that's a heck of a percentage. All right, I want to thank D.L. McComan Sons Funeral Homes, a proud sponsor of the Blue Gold Report podcast. We'll do it all over again next week. Todd, a nice job as always, and enjoy the game. I will. We'll break it all down for you next week, Wags. <laughs> all right, my friend. All right. This has been a presentation of Opt-In Productions. Podcasts by Federated Media. Podcasts by Federated Media.